This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 214 of the Stable Scoop Radio Show on the Horse Radio Network. The Cowboy and the Lady Knight. Please support our sponsors as they make this show possible. Our sponsors this week are Equestrian Collections, Kentucky Performance Products, Draper Therapies, and Fleeceworks. You can find links to all of those terrific companies at StableScoop.com. Welcome to the Stable Scoop, with weekly shows delivered right to you. With Helena and Glenn the Geek, live from the stable, it's every week. They bring you the news through hell, high water, while using their tails as their own fly swatters. So sit on down and laugh till your poop, cause it's time again for Stable School. Stable School. Stable School. This is Glenda Geek. And this is Helena B. And you're listening to the Stable Scoop Radio Show on the Horse Radio Network. Howdy, Helena. Howdy. Uh, I'll tell you what, we got a full show planned for everybody today, and, and this week it's not about us. We're just going to go right to the guest. Last week we got the, uh, by the way, I got to tell you, Uh-oh. that that story, if anybody missed last week's show, you have to go listen. It was it was ranked up there in one of the top five funniest five minutes that have ever been on the Horse Radio <laughs> Network. <laughs> you think this, the, the episode was funny? Try living it. Did you have to go back and listen to last week's episode? It was episode two hundred thirteen. Listen to the interview with Sissy, and especially listen for the for the wedding cake part. <laughs> we we I took that five minutes out and played it on uh, Friday's Horses in the Morning show. Yep. And I, my God, Jennifer and, and Jamie were just rolling on the floor laughing. It was one of the funniest five <laughs> minutes that we've... It's gone in the bl- best of real, for sure. <laughs> I don't know what was the funniest, the wedding uh, cake or the Ziploc bag? I know, I know. The whole thing was just... It was just hilarious. So that that definitely gets goes in there with one of the, the funniest. Uh, right up there at the top. <clears throat> uh, but if you missed it, go back and take a listen to it. But today we have several guests for you I'm very excited about. We have Jonathan Field who competed in last year's Road to the Horse for Canada, was one of the competitors for Canada last year. He's a trainer and a clinician, and we're going to get him on and chat with him a little bit about uh, what he's up to. And then I had an interesting interview I got to do last week with uh, Virginia Hankins, who is is really one of the coolest interviews. Honestly, Helena, and all the interviews I've done is one of the coolest ones I've ever done. Um, she, she is a, uh, a, a female fighter, a stunt, a stunt archer, a mounted weapons trainer, a jouster, uh, a horsewoman, a professional. Wait a minute. Knight. Wait a minute. Mounted weapons trainer. I yes. Like that. For, for movies, <laughs> like uh, and things. And she's a stunt, stunt person, <laughs> uh, just an un- unbelievable, uh, character has done a ton of different things. Um, so she is just a fascinating person, absolutely beautiful girl too. And she has a couple other things that she does too, that she's going to talk about, uh, that you haven't quite, you didn't even know that was an occupation before. So we're going to get to that interview as well. Plus, uh, Lisa checks in from Ada with another uh, interview that she did over at the American Equestrian Trade Association. So we have all of that coming up for you today. So let's just not waste any time and get right to it. 
First up, right after this word from Fleeceworks, we have Jonathan Field, who represented the Road of the Horse for Canada in 2012. He's a clinician, he's a natural horseman, and all-around just good guy, and we're going to talk to him about uh, what he does for a living. Fleeceworks manufactures pure Australian merino sheepskin and merino wool saddle pads and accessories. Their pads produce a vital thermal balancing layer to pull excess moisture and heat away from the horse's back, allowing muscles to work at maximum capacity without overheating. Fleeceworks Australian Merino Wool is breathable and hydrophilic, able to hold and store 35% of its own weight in liquid. A longtime staple of the medical field, Australian Merino fibers have no equal when it comes to delivering a temperature-controlled, pressure-absorbing layer. The Fleeceworks philosophy, minimum bulk, maximum performance, and they have a variety of anatomically correct pads incorporating technologies and designs that address the individual needs of every horse and rider. Ask for Fleeceworks saddle pads and accessories by name at your local tack and feed store or visit them online at fleeceworks.com. Well, Jonathan, welcome to the Stable Scoop Show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, it's so good to have you on, and I thank Lisa from Norco, our friend out there in, at, uh, at Norco for California, for helping put this together. Now, Jonathan, you know, we have not had you on the air yet before, yet I know about you because we do cover Road to the Horse, and of course you were one of the competitors last year at Road to the Horse. What was that like? What was that experience like for you, you know, and how cool was it being in front of uh, 10,000 people in that stadium? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was so it was so amazing on so many levels, and you know the biggest the biggest reason was just to be there to represent your country. You know, as a clinician and a horseman, you know when would be the chance that I would ever have the opportunity to uh, you know ride out with our flag? And I, I think every one of us felt that you know just going out there and you know the, all the other moments you know in front of the people and and uh you know being there with those guys and those amazing judges and the whole group it was it was surreal the whole weekend it went by so fast but you know because it built up built up built up and then blink it's gone <laughs> but uh it was a lot of fun just a totally awesome opportunity that to the land supplied us how uh how difficult was it now you guys uh, i think everybody pretty much knows you know we talked about road to the horse here our audience pretty much knows what it is how difficult it is, is it to train those horses in front of all those people and to keep your concentration. I know we, you, you could probably ask that about any athlete, but is it difficult? Because now you're dealing with a horse that has to try and ignore that audience as well. Mm. Yeah, for sure. You know, because in the beginning, uh, cheers or claps or, you know, the, the just the, the energy of the audience, of, of course, that feeds into the situation which you can't prepare for at home. So that's something you adapt to. And, and I think the biggest thing that, you, you know, we just try to keep – you know, one thing I just kept saying in my my mind when I was in the round pen was, you know, be right here with this horse right now, and that's what that horse, that's what that horse deserves. Uh, you know, is your full attention, and that's the only way that they're going to be able to uh, really, you know, make the most progress the quickest. Hmm. Well, and I know, um, you know, you were you had a you had a formidable com- competitors in in all four of the others that were there. But the, the the ones who ended up being the winners were Guy McLean is actually a good friend of the Horse Radio Network, and we, we started following him and started having him on the show as soon as he came to the United States. I happened to meet him, uh, and he's been a good friend of the Horse Radio Network ever since. And uh, 
They, from what I hear, they put on a good show too. Oh, they did great. You know, the, all of the guys, the Aussies and the American boys, they, they did such an awesome job. And, you know, there was a real sense of camaraderie between the six of us. And we were all cheering each other on in the back. And, um, you know, because we're all in this together, we're trying to do the best we can by the horse. And we're trying to, you know, show people uh, what's achievable uh, with these methods. And uh, it was just, uh, you know, I was so proud to be amongst these guys and, uh, and such amazing horsemen. And, and Guy and, and Dan and Pat and Craig, and Glenn, these are all friends that we cross paths at the various expos throughout the throughout the year. And of course, Pat's a, you know a really a significant mentor of mine and a friend. And uh, so you know it was great to be there with those guys and and just kind of get into that you know there's six of you and you're all looking at each other like okay we're all in this together guys we're gonna you know have good luck today have fun stay safe let's go get them you know kind of thing. It's nice that you have a uh, sort of a peer group at that level. You know it's like. They, we were talking about, I had my trainer over for dinner the other day and, and a couple of show moms and we all sort of sit around and say, oh, it's so nice that we, we all have this little family of, you know, riders and parents and trainers and stuff like that. And then, but you sometimes forget that the professionals at your level, you also need that kind of family, that extended support group. And it sounds like you have that no matter where you go, you can always kind of touch base with someone who understands, who gets what it is you're doing. It's so true, you know, and, you know, that's the thing. I mean, you can just look at any one of these guys and look at their lives and meet their wives and, and their, the crew that helps them, and, and you know what they go through because they're going through the same thing that you are uh, throughout the year. And, uh, and, you know, there's the same ups and downs and the same challenges. And, uh, and you know, the, this year at Road to the Horse, I've not been to any other one, but, you know, a lot of people said it was just such a nice energy amongst the guys and, and it truly was. There was just such a nice feel in the back. It was it was celebratory. Uh, it was about you know sharing this information and doing the best we can by these horses. Well, and I think this was the first year too that they had done uh, the 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 countries against each other. It had all been individuals before. They had never really done the countries before, and I'm sure that added to it. I know uh, Tootie, you know, who started this. Tootie Bland is the one who started Road to the Horse, and she is an unbelievable marketer. She uh, gets marketing. We've had her on the show before, and we've had this discussion with her before. She just is an unbelievable marketer, and to throw the country thing in there was a, a stroke of genius. Oh yeah, it was. You know, you have you have everybody that roots for their clinician. They have people that root for their horse that they like, or you know. But to bring that part in about the country was, you know, because everybody celebrated that. You know, they it was it was you could it started out everybody was really celebrating each country that was whoever there, and then everybody started celebrating everybody because it was you know it's just a real there was that that you know I spoke about that sense between the clinicians, but the audience was so amazingly supportive as well for all of us you know didn't matter what country we were from but there sure was an energy and a real uh, uh you know patriotism a real you know sense of pride uh that the canadians felt that the americans and the aussies all felt for their guys and and just for their country being represented so well this year so, i was just going to say helena real quick that this year coming up it's going to change venue it actually is for the first time ever it's moving to the kentucky horse park um, in March, on March 15th, 16th, and 17th, it'll be at the Kentucky Horse Park. And they're bringing Guy McLean and J- Dan James from Australia back to compete against uh, a couple of young American girls this time, Helena. They're 22 and 27, I think. 
uh, Obi Schlam and Sarah Winters are going to be their competitors. So this is the first time that they've had, though it's only the second time that they've actually had a woman, and now we're going to have them competing against the champions from last year. So it's, they're mixing it up a, get, a little bit again this year. Yeah, and I'm going to come down and watch. <laughs> it's the 10-year anniversary, and uh, Tootie's invited us, all the clinicians that have ever been the road to the horse, and she's trying to kind of gather us together there. And uh, I said I'd love to come down and see these guys and cheer them all on and and, uh, and then get to be on the side of the seats where you, know, you simply get to watch and see it all play out because I didn't, you know, I didn't get to see how they – I'm so focused on the round pen doing my thing that you really don't get a sense of the show in the same way as a spectator. So I'm a fan as well and want to watch and, and uh, see all the all the happenings because, uh, you know, Tootie, she puts on an amazing, amazing show. It was, you know, in, late into the night and people were not leaving the seats. It was really remarkable. So how, when you're not working on a project as intense as the road to the horse, what typically takes up an average day in the life for you? Yeah, um, the most thing, I, the, the biggest thing that we do is, uh, you know, uh, we travel and teach uh, clinics, and we have two properties, uh, one near Vancouver in Abbotsford, B.C., and then a ranch where I'm at right now in Merritt, and uh, that's in the Nicola, <coughs> excuse me, that's in the Nicola Valley, and uh, it's very cowboy country here, and uh, beautiful uh, grassland country and some mountains, so we are split between traveling, uh, doing the clinics around the country, and we have a motorhome that with two little boys and my wife we all load up into it we have a little three-year-old little mason and six-year-old weston and we go around and help people with their horses and the various cl- clinics around the country aside from the expos and stuff and then the rest of the time we're either at one of those two facilities and people come from around the country to uh, ride around the mountains of the james creek ranch and move cattle and you know have a horsemanship experience in you know kind of in a bigger setting in the arena when you when you were growing up, uh, I read that uh, you were actually you wore a helmet and some uh, you wore riding pants and a helmet when you first started yeah. out. You were on the English side of things, and then uh, wh- wh- how did that change? Well, what happened was my mom was a dressage rider. She's an English rider and uh, loved dressage, and my dad was a working cowboy, and uh, he did that for many years of his life. And actually, both of them actually rode horses to school in the prairies out in uh, Saskatchewan and Manitoba. So horses have been a part of their life life and when i was uh, a young guy me and my sister both we both were english riders and mom that's where she put us first and uh so it gave us a really good background of riding and, and we both had a love for the horse so it didn't really too much matter the outfit but the the there's a koshana cattle company it's called and it's a working ranch right here in the valley i'm in right now just out of merit it's a big working ranch it's about 300,000 acres and uh, a beautiful old historic fifth generation family ranch and I went there with my dad and mom. We went up there, went for a ride, and to work with these working cowboys and, you know, see what it was like. And it's essentially on the horse side of it, uh, it's very similar to how it's been done for 100 years. You know, very traditional, you know, not on the farming side, not like on the cattle side, it's much more traditional. On the farming side, you know, they've obviously modernized. But uh, the on the horse side and, and the cattle side, you know, riding in the mountains and moving these cattle from pasture to pasture, and I seen those cowboys and those dogs in that cow camp, and I was struck. I mean, I fell in love with that whole thing, and that was the end of the breaches for me. <laughs> you know, and and, I, and now today I must say I still love riding jumping horses. I'm still passionate about dressage, but I don't I don't do it very often. But I I do ride. And jumping you don't wear breeches. 
I don't wear deep breeches. No, I was even, I even went down my road with a friend of mine, George Morris in uh, Wellington, Florida. He invited me down to teach me jumping. And uh, so I go down there and, and I'm in my Wrangler jeans and, you know, I have my, my cowboy boots on. He says, now you need to see if you can get a set of Prince of Wales spurs for your cowboy boots. And I was in Texas at the time. Well, it's hard to find a set of Prince of Wales spurs <laughs> for my cowboy boots. I finally found some and then I flew over to Florida and I had a nice nice time with him. But I, I am very passionate about jumping horses still. So you catch me in English saddle quite often. <laughs> That's cool. That's very cool. So do do you take, do you often like go and take clinics and how do you further your own education? I mean, there does come a point where you pretty much know what you need to do in order to train horses your way, but do you, do you branch out at all? Do you stretch that? Oh yeah. No, I don't know that there ever comes a point where, you know, <laughs> I think you're always learning and always growing. And, uh, you know, and I find that, uh, I go out and, uh, you know, I took, I took a dressage clinic with my, I have a, an Andalusian stallion that I ride and I took a clinic with a Portuguese dressage rider. Uh, you know, just a few months ago, I took uh, several jumping clinics recently from really, really good horsemen that are, that are horsemen themselves, aside from uh, being trainers. Uh, you know, I respect them as just horsemen. Uh, and then they're obviously specialized in dressage or jumping, but you know, I, I constantly go out. I'm a, uh, you know, I'm now in this role of a teacher of horsemanship, but I'm still an avid student and very passionate about it. And, and always trying to learn and be better and understand how a horse's, you know, not only how a horse's uh, mind works and, and, and how the whole herd dynamic works, but also uh, the mechanics of the horse and how you position their body and and get them to use themselves easier and easier. And uh, that's something that I so much love about, you know, the, even just the clinic I took, you know, recently with in the dressage clinic with my stallion. I learned so many things that just I may have heard as a kid or something, but it stuck out and, you know, it just influences even how you start a cold or some little piece up higher, you know, kind of in the pyramid of knowledge, you know, it, it affects how the base is, how, how it started. And uh, I always pick up more. Well, I was glad to see too. We, we've had a lot of clinicians on the show here over the period of time. And, you know, so many of them focus on starting, you know, on starting babies and starting colts and, you know, doing all of that. Yet where most of us are, I would say in the horse world is we're, we're not, we're not starting babies. We're, we're out there riding, just learning to ride better. And I was glad to see that, you know, with your clinics, you, you do work on that. You work on learning to ride better. What makes what you do in your clinics different than, than what the myriad of other clinicians out there do? Well, I guess, I guess uh, everybody has a different way of saying things. And, it, you know, whoever can kind of resonate and understand and, and, and get what, uh, what any, any one of our teachers are saying. And, and what I'm trying to do is really help help the, the, from a foundation point of view. So after your horse has started, now you have a riding horse and there, but there's still issues, you know, leadership and safety out on the trail or understanding horse behavior or rider dynamics and uh, just those kinds of things. And that's really the foundation of knowledge. So I've divided the program that I use uh, from that point of view and people can take various level courses that as they gain more knowledge, they can, uh, you know, go to a, a more difficult course that has yet more layers of the onion kind of come off and and learn more. So that's what we essentially use our ranch for here. Uh, we have higher level events here where people can, that have already kind of been through the basics, they can get to that next level of knowledge and I can share some of the stuff that, you know, from a dressage background or jumping background. And, you know, I also rode with Craig Johnson, a wonderful guy and just an amazing reigning horse trainer and, and rode with him for a month in Texas. So I bring some of that to it and um, 
I really, uh, I really like all the disciplines. So I, you know, I try to make sure to bring in the knowledge of the, uh, of the horse in each one of those, but always looking at it from not saying I'm going to train you about reining, even I'm not even going to train you about jumping, even though it may be a passion of mine. I'm going to teach you about, you know, building up, you know, getting the rock to build your house on, you know, and that's what, what I'm trying to do is help them build a really, really strong foundation, get a really solid rock so that they understand that when they go into any circumstance, uh, they have the knowledge to, to, to get it done themselves and get, get it done beyond the clinic that they're at. So if you have, you have such a diverse group of, of students then and clinic participants, um, and you do enjoy all the aspects, all the disciplines, um, do you find that you do see patterns like those stereotypes about thoroughbreds and quarter horses and warm bloods? Um, is there any truth to whether, you know, whether a horse is more trainable or less trainable, trainable than another based on their breeding or the discipline that they've been trained in? Mm, good question. You know, the, the thing that we see all the time, because we do like, you know, we do have a wide variety. We'll have people that are competitors come in English or Western disciplines. And then we have, you know, people that are very, very recreational uh, and that's by far the large amount. But, uh, you know, the biggest thing that we try to teach them is to try to understand at that moment where the horse is coming from and how to move it towards what we're looking for. Uh, and that would just be a better partnership. That would be that the, so you get, you know, if you have a, a horses that have been trained in a certain discipline, uh, we have people that bring horses off the track and you definitely have traits, obviously in the breed or in the disciplines, but mostly we're trying to move horses to the middle. You know, if they're, if they're way too sensitive and overreactionary, you know, we don't want to create them dull and desensitized completely. We want them sensitive without being scared. If they're dull and thick and been over lunged and over circled and, you know, just been in an arena their entire life and they've kind of got that glazed, like, I don't care about anything anymore. Uh, well, we want to wake those ones up, but we want to wake them up without getting, you know, scared. And we want to wake them up without them getting flighty. So it's always about moving to the center uh, of that pendulum that goes back and forth. So it doesn't really matter the breed or, or the discipline that they were in. There's traits that you have to deal with each one of those that are, common but mostly i want to teach people when you if you start swinging the pendulum to the right and you keep doing those things you're going to hit center for a while and it's going to feel really good but if you keep doing the things you did to get to center you're going to be swinging too far to the right after a little while then you have to learn all those skills to get back to the center again so horsemanship is really about learning both halves it doesn't really doesn't matter as much about the discipline they're coming from or the breed we're get, we we don't have a whole lot of time here, but I wanted to follow up on that and, and and ask you a question about that. We all have our comfort zones as humans. We have comfort zones that we tend to stick in because that's what we do as humans. We we tend to not want to get out of our comfort zones. Do you find that in your clinics, especially your more advanced clinics, do you find that people get into these comfort zones? I was ta- you know I was using the example of your horse there uh, that you know was bored to death, just going around and around in a circle. Yet that same rider's probably you know too petrified to take it out on a trail ride and, and try and give it a change of scenery. Do, do you find that comfort zones are the hardest things that you deal with with your students and your horses? Yeah, absolutely. And and you know a lot of times the reason is is legit. It's it's because it's a safety issue. You know they have a horse that has been arena. In, in an arena his whole life and uh, kind of, you know, and the training program that so many people use kind of keep horses kind of calm and quiet and make sure they're all, 
you know, looked after and tucked away in this little box where we don't have things happen. And so the the legitimate reason that they stay there is because if they go outside of that little world, you know, they can be thrown or they can have a runaway or something can go wrong. So really what we try to do is to help people understand how do we, you know, move out of that comfort zone and understand that it's important both for the horse and for us, besides having more fun, uh, it's important for the horse as well so that they get more comfortable in much broader environments and, and try to do that incrementally, sequentially, logically, you know, to move out and then bring the horse back and then move out again. And when they can start to do that, then they start to become very empowered to, hey, I could try this or I could try that and I know I could back off and I know I could stay safe. The real thing I feel for people is when, you know, they have this dream of horsemanship, the dream of relationship with a horse, and they see the mountains and they want to ride them or go to a show or do something, and they're confined to a 20, you know, meter by 60 meter arena that uh, they can't go, they can't have two people in there, they, you know, they can't play with the horse, they, they, you know, they get into this world of, you know, the very, very small little world of the horse, and there's so much more to do with them. Well, we're uh, running out of time here, Jonathan. I did want to mention your website. It's jonathanfield.net, and we'll put a link to that in our show notes and our Facebook page as well. Uh, and you, you have DVDs on there as well as um, you, you have your events listed, and I wanted to mention one of them in particular. You're heading to California a little later in the year and going to be in one of our favorite towns, Norco. Yeah. Yeah. In November, we're going to start in Northern California and then work our way down from Ferndale or Eureka, I guess it is, down to Livermore and then down to Norco. And I can't wait to get to Horsetown, USA. <laughs> and Lisa is our friend down there that's hosting mm-hmm. it for us. And uh, we're really excited to be there. It's going to be the first time I've been in Pomona before, but uh, never in Norco. So I'm really curious and really excited to get down there. And thanks so much for having me on the show. It was a real pleasure. No problem, and thank you so much for joining us. It's jonathanfield.net. Well, I'm back here with Kat from Draper Therapies. How are you, Kat? I'm great. How are you doing, Glenn? Good. What are we talking about this week? Today we're going to be talking a little bit about our Draper Philanthropic Project, and that has to do with something we started quite a few years ago in that we're helping adrenal cancer research. Now, how we got started in this was actually because I am a cancer survivor, thyroid cancer to be exact, and we wanted to find a way to give back. Now, thyroid cancer is actually a very curable type of cancer because once they take it out, they can treat it very specifically, and then pretty much it's done after that. But with adrenal cancer, it's not. It's one of these things that they have a few treatments for, but they're derivatives of pesticides. So it's a really ugly thing to get, and it's pretty much fatal when you do get it. So I knew a musician who really helped me with my own healing process. So I wanted to give back in this way. And when we were looking at it from Draper Therapies perspective, so it not only had it touched me, which I'm a big part of Draper Therapies, but we also found that with um, horses and dogs, they get Cushing's. And Cushing's is very related to adrenal cancer or adrenal problems that, you know, we come across. So with this, we figured it encompasses all three of the Draper Therapies lines, and this was a wonderful way to give back. And we've been able to donate quite a bit of money just by the sale of a few products. And one of the products specifically today that I wanted to talk about was our draped in health blankets. Now, there are these huge blankets. They're actually 72 by 60 inches, so they're nice big throw blankets, nice and comfy, and they come in bright colors, which is a little bit different for the Draper Therapies line because usually they're charcoal and navy or burgundy. So these come in bright colors. They're great throw blankets, 
And half of the money that you would um, use to purchase these goes back to adrenal cancer research directly. So there's no middleman, there's no money we're taking out. It's just all going to that avenue, which is really fantastic. So when our customers are buying therapeutic products, it's a way to give back to cancer research and getting something awesome either for themselves or as a gift. And these That's are, awesome. That's yeah, uh, It's just really so clean and simple. Yeah, it, it's really, and it's a fantastic product. Like I have people who buy them as gifts every single year because they love that it's giving back. So it's kind of like their Christmas gift that they get for like their family members. And now they collect them and they think it's really fun to get them in all the colors too. Well, let's not forget too that they do offer the therapeutic benefits that uh, uh, like the other Draper products as well. Absolutely. So you get all the great benefits of decreased swelling, pain, stiffness, soreness, all that great stuff, increase in oxygenation, which helps with healing. And I have a lot of people who actually sleep on them, which, you know, Cellium has been proven to get you a better night's sleep. So all of those things you're getting with this awesome blanket and giving back to cancer research. And they come in pretty colors, Helena. Cream I know. Pink. That's all I heard. As soon as she said cool colors, I was like, I'm all over it. <laughs> and you can find them on, at drapertherapies.com. The price is $75. And then, you know, of course, as she said, a portion of that does go back uh, to support the cancer research. We really appreciate you being on Cat and we, you know, we appreciate uh, Draper's efforts to give back in this way. Thank you very much. We're really happy to be doing it. So, Cat, how was your trip to England? You just got an opportunity to go over to England and spend some time with the Queen. How'd that go? Well, I don't think we got to spend any time with the Queen. We did, oh. did get to hang out. In <laughs> she her canceled on you. Bit, did she stand you cool. up again? She canceled. <laughs> I think so. It was really sad, but we did get to walk around in her palace and everything, which was pretty awesome, without supervision, which was cool. So I'm not going to complain. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you went to an event over there? Yes, we did. Our main focus was to go over there for the Blenheim Palace International Horse Trials. So that was the big three-day event that they did, which was right after Burley and after the Olympics. And it was fantastic. I mean, the whole British eventing squad was there, and all of these international riders came out for it. And it's just a lovely, lovely event. They, the event organizers really work with the Duke and Duchess of Marlborough, which is that is their main residence there, which is Blenheim Palace. And they worked with them to put on this amazing event. Like, a lot of us that go to events here in the United States aren't used to spectators and things like that unless you get into the much higher levels and certain types of events and then you see spectators. Well, this is a huge family affair. I mean, everybody in their families, their dogs, I mean, everybody had dogs. It was crazy. There were so many spectators, and especially because in England this year, so many of the events had been canceled. This was everybody's hurrah to kind of get out there and really enjoy the weather and the eventing and shopping, and it was it was phenomenal. Hmm. Wish I went, Glenn. <laughs> My company doesn't send me to England. And you, uh, <laughs> she's every every time we hear about a new place, she says that. I get that a lot. Um, well, maybe you guys need to take a little business trip somewhere. Yeah. I know. We need a break here from the United States. Apparently, we need to go to England. So now you made a comment on your Facebook page the one day you were over there, and you compared to where you were to a certain TV show that all three of us love. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! I can't even get over that. Like, yeah, it was living in Downton Abbey. It was amazing, and so there were so many parallels. I could barely get over it. I mean, first, it's kind of set over there, anyways, in the 1920s, and. You get all that. So one of the exhibitions that uh, Blenheim had put on was a side saddle demonstration. So all the amazing hunt outfits that you saw in Downton Abbey, as well as a lot of just the style from the 1920s, 
was there in living, breathing color, which was amazing. <laughs> then you had Blenheim Palace and the history, which I didn't even realize until we kind of walked through just kind of to learn a little bit more about the history of the place and everything like that, is that it parallels so much of what goes on in Downton Abbey as far as them using Blenheim Palace as a period of time in the 1920s to kind of help recoup um, war veterans, which was amazing, which parallels along with Downton Abbey. So there were so many parallels, I could barely get over it. It was amazing. And are you are you two like Jennifer and I? We were sitting around last night, and Jennifer says to me, "When's Downton Abbey coming back on?" It seems like it's been forever. <laughs> I know. No, I'm totally like that. So I'm with you there. I want it to be back on like immediately, and I just want to keep watching it all the time because I love it. <laughs> I know it is coming back in January. I think January of, uh, in the middle of winter. I know when we're like totally dying for something to do and watch, and somebody else's lives to follow because ours are boring because we're stuck inside. <sighs> Well, thank you, Kat. Um, you did have a good time, it looked like, on Facebook, and, and I'm, I'm so glad that you got to make that trip. Oh, yeah, no, it was fantastic. I'm really glad, and thank you so much for allowing me to share it with you guys. Well, Helena, next up is the interview I got to do last week with Virginia Hankins, and you've seen her picture. She's an absolutely beautiful girl uh, with striking red hair. She's, she is descendants of Celtics. Um, so she is a she is a real Celtic, uh, Celtic uh, goddess according to these pictures, <laughs> and uh, she's a, but she's one tough girl. She's a female fighter. She's a stunt archer. She's a mounted archer. She's a weapons trainer. She's a jouster. She's one of the very few professional lady knights in the country, and also she is a free water an underwater uh, free diver. Do you know what that means? She can stay underwater for a long time without taking a breath is what that means. Yeah. And yeah, she- there was a movie once called, um, I think, Big Blue, and it was about free divers. It's pretty crazy stuff. It is. And she's but then a- again, so is mounted weapons training. So she's, <laughs> she's not taking things easy, this one. Yet she's absolutely delightful, but one tough cookie. And she looks a lot like somebody, and we're going to find out who in this interview coming up. So let's, let's go to Virginia Hankins from Los Angeles. Well, hi, Virginia, and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's so good to talk to you. Well, let's start at the beginning. When did uh, horses come into your life? Wow. Um, <laughs> I actually have pictures of myself as a baby just being enamored with rocking horses. I think it was one of those people that was just always wired that way. And I started going to summer camp, I think, when I was about eight, and it just haven't stopped since. Well, now, you know, you, you went from, from horses. Did, were you a competitor? Did you compete at all, or did you just ride as, as a kid, just ride? No, my family actually didn't want me uh, competing because a lot of the show barns in the area um, were a little intense. So they just always had me in lessons or sent me to summer camp or 4-H or I hung out with some of the pony club kids, that kind of thing. And I didn't actually get competitive until my 20s, so when I started doing more medieval and stunt-type stuff. <laughs> That's why I was laughing. They didn't want you being too competitive, and look what you do now. What an irony, huh? Well, that's the family for you. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were growing up, were you into ponies? Did you have uh, ride ponies? Or, uh, were you, what I'm trying to get at is how did you mm-hmm. come from you know, being, being on horseback uh, and goofing around and, and doing that kind of thing to what you do today, which requires a great amount of horsemanship? Right. It's actually really neat. I love what I do today. It's incredible because it's both performance plus horse husbandry plus riding, a little bit of dressage, a lot of gymkhana. It's 
pretty much an, a very unusual hybrid of disciplines plus history all thrown in. I just started dabbling in different disciplines. I When I went to camp as a kid, it was Western because I'm in the Southwest. And then in high school, I swapped over to English. And oddly enough, I had a very, very bad riding scare in high school that left me a little bit afraid of horses. So um, doing the appropriate thing, I decided to get over it, and I took up polo in college. (laughs) (laughs) Because if anything, you know, that'll... Yeah, that'll solve that fear of horses. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) So I just fell in love with it again, and I... At the time I was in college, I was at the University of Southern California, or USC, in Los Angeles, California. And the mascot for USC is actually a mounted Trojan warrior on a gorgeous gray Andalusian. And I was brought on to be one of the horse handlers and behind-the-scenes kind of groom and a helper for the stunt rider, that kind of thing. And the person at the time that was doing it was a very good showman. And he was a very good rider as a polo player. So I was looking at that and said to myself, well, that looks like fun. (laughs) You know, riding around in front of 70,000 people with weapons. That sounded like a brilliant idea. So it really sparked my love of history. And then I randomly read a book, uh, or rather a book series by Tamara Pierce, called The Lioness Quartet, which is a fantastic fantasy novel read about a redheaded lady knight. And I put the two together and said, wow, I still love horses, and I'm kind of interested in this history thing, and, huh, let's just decide to be a knight now, shall we? So I went off my journey. (laughs) I'm very much one of those people that I see something and I just go for it. So in this process, I started networking, and it took me at that time about six months to a year before I was able to find a coach that would take me on because I'm a rather um, lightweight female and networked all across the United States trying to find a coach, ended up with the Society for Creative Anachronism, or SCA, as it's called. And they said, yeah, we'll train you to joust. Just come out to practice. Let's see what you can do. And that one thing led to another, and I got really good at it, at which point I started training other people. And then when you build a big enough brand and you're visible enough, then people start knowing who you are. And they started booking me on professional gigs, which led to Hollywood. And you live out in L.A. right now, right? Yes, I do. It's fantastic. (laughs) I love the fact that I can ride all year uh, year long. Well, I see a picture on here. I don't know if this is your horse or not on your website. uh, Casanova? That's mine. That's my primary stunt horse. He is a gorgeous um, Azteca, which is an Andalusian cross of a quarter horse. He's 16 hands, and he's a beautiful gelding. He is beautiful. I mean, and he's striking in comparison to your uh, shiny armor. (laughs) Yes, he your red hair. It's very (laughs) striking. So now, that's Mm -hmm. how how you progressed into into learning uh, into learning the you know the medieval arts, which really are are Mm -hmm. uh, jousting and swordsmanship and things like that. But your main forte is is the bow and arrow, right? Isn't that what? Well, off the horse, my main forte is the bow and arrow. On the horse, my main, main forte's are sword and javelin. Okay. So I've been competing nationally in archery on and off for 10 years, and I'm a level two coach of the USA Archery Association. So it basically means I'm an archery coach that qualified to teach other archery coaches for general ranking level. And I love archery. It's, that's been around in my life as long as horses. 
So I do do it on the horses because you have so many toys and you're like, let's just put all the toys together and let's play with them at one time. So that's a real treat. I love doing mounted archery when the opportunity comes up due to the uh, location. Well, you know, we just had a show not too long ago. We interviewed uh, one of the top mounted archers in the world. She travels all over the world doing that. And uh, it just looks like so much fun. It's incredible. And it's great training. It really makes you stop and think and slow down. And at the base, it's a lot of pattern work. It's a lot of leg yielding work. It's a lot of just quiet communication. I use mounted archery plus a lot of the jousting games to actually work with my horses on verbal commands. Because when you're in armor, uh, you rely a lot on your seat, you rely a lot on your legs, you rely a lot, or hopefully not too much, on your hands. But our visibility is so bad that if I can get my horses voice trained, then it makes my life easier. So I actually do that with mounted archery as well, about just getting them to work off my voice and work off my weight. And when they're doing their job, then of course it's a lot easier to nail the target. Now, you, you went to school, and did you graduate from college? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and what, you actually had a double major? Yes, I did a dual major in biomedical and mechanical engineering at USC. All right, there's a couple of tough courses. Um, <laughs> and, and your parents were so proud, and then all of a sudden you're out uh, shooting bows off of a horse for a living. Uh, uh, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Has this been, this road that you've taken, obviously, to try and find a career in something that you love and you're good at, has, it, it could not have been easy all along the way. It never is. No. I, a trait that I happen to have that served me extremely well is tenacity. And being able to really set my eye on a, on a focused target, I, I think without trying to be hubris here, I I think I've actually gone about it a pretty good way because while I do the stunt industry stuff and while I do the training and the coaching and all my fun jobs, I also have maintained a very, very good, uh, quote-unquote, real job um, per society conceptions. So because I really focused on my education and got a solid career behind me, that's enabled me to put money into my training and my gear and my horses and really pay attention to details, which at the end of the day helps tremendously in a performance. But there, for a couple of years when I was first starting, there were very, very, very few women doing what I do. There still are professionally on my level, but there are a lot of amateurs starting, which is great. In the early times when I was first starting, I just was constantly told Basically, that's nice. You want to do that. Um, you're not a guy. And still to this day, a lot of big shows like Medieval Times, it's a slight one, they will not fight, field a female fighter, period. And, you know, in other jobs, that's called discrimination. In the theatrical world, that's called casting. Yeah. So, they can get away with it. Yeah. yeah. And so a lot of times I get really upset about that. And then I just kept coming back to the fact that. Well, I still enjoy it. I still get to meet great people with it. And I still love my horses. And I still love to perform. So I'm just going to keep doing it. You know, we all the time are getting, hearing from, you know, teenage girls growing up who want to, you know, who want to make a living with horses. And, you know, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. that's what you hear the most of. And I, you know, I wanted them to hear from you, somebody mm-hmm. who, you know, who, who is doing a really cold job. 
but that you had that basis there. You had, I mean, you basically had a double major in some very difficult uh, courses as a backup. Absolutely. And I think that's a smart way to go because the reality is horses are fabulous, wonderful creatures. The other reality is there's a lot of people that want to do this. And there's a lot of people that will do it for free, which means that there's a lot of people that will be going for the same job underbidding you, where if you don't have a solid foundation to rely on, you simply won't be able to support yourself. And the a Hollywood misnomer is that, oh, we all do this all the time. The reality is that every single professional person I know in the Hollywood stunt industry, when, with a few exceptions of the people that are hired on a bunch of features, AK movies, and they travel all the time without horses, everyone here has a secondary or third job. And um, a lot of people I'll meet on set are waitresses. Yep. And then there's a select handful, with, which are what I am, which they're investment bankers, they're lawyers, they're nurses. They actually have pretty powerful jobs where they've man- managed to maneuver themselves in a position where they can have the health insurance and the benefits which that kind of career can provide you with which then enables them to do what they really have a passion in. We'll be right back with more from Virginia Hankins right after this. Hi, Glenn here from the Horse Radio Network, and I'm here with Debbie from Equestrian Collections with the Equestrian Collections Product of the Week. This week, I'm talking about the Whores Happy-Go-Lucky Pony Backpack. It's back to school here in the Northeast, and I think probably all over the country. September is back to school uh, month, and this is the cutest little backpack I have ever seen. It actually looks like a horse. It is from our vendor, H-O-R-Z-E, Horse, and it's called a Happy-Go-Lucky Pony Backpack. It looks like a pony. It's got a mane. It's got ears. It's got a little tongue hanging out. It's really cute. I think the younger kids would really love to carry this to their schools. And it's also kind of cute. Even adults might find this cute is to put something in at the barn or maybe even a helmet cover, which is what I was thinking of. So it's something to look at on our site under the vendor Horsey. We have an awful lot of their uh, brands up. We've just put a lot of new stuff up under that vendor and look for the pony backpack. We have a lot of back to school items on our site, especially a lot of backpacks. We've just got everything from camouflage to this cute little pony backpack. So take a look. And you also have a ton of just kids stuff, whether it's for shows or riding or breeches or helmets. Uh, there is a whole bunch of kids stuff up there. So if you're looking for something for your child, Equestrian Collections is the place to go. And you can find him at EquestrianCollections.com. Now, I told you yesterday, and most of the audience knows this, uh, that have been regular right. listeners, is I, uh, I was involved in the... My wife and I actually met at the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair, which was one of the... It was started about the same time, I think, as the California Renaissance Fairs were started and is now one of the largest ones in the country. And we met there, and then we formed our own acting company and did Medieval Feasts for 10 years. So awesome. so when I saw your picture, I, and I actually posted it on our one Facebook page, I said, I don't know why I find women in armor so attractive, but I think that's a guy thing. I think we all find women in armor so attractive. I don't know if it's the power thing or what it is. I'm not it's sure what neat. it is. 
it, yeah, I get that a lot from men, but I also get it a lot from women. Um, the the character I bring to the field is the one that I've been working on for seven years, and it's mostly uh, it's who I am in my daily life. It, a lot of the men like it because there's a group that loves the armor, and they're like, oh, my goodness, that's gorgeous. Oh, you do and have some beautiful armor, gorgeous, by the way. <laughs> it's one of the best in the world right now. Um, and I'm very fortunate where I have an entire support crew under me of armorers and tack makers and costumers, etc., where all of them are brilliant artisans. So I get fielded in gorgeous stuff. But then there's another group which are like the warrior chick, and they really like the strong female because it represents, you know, a person that's willing to go for their goals or a person that's willing to take hold of their own life, isn't waiting for someone else to tell them what to do. And that is sexy. And the women like the same thing about it. I have so many women that are uh, fan followers as well as a lot of kids, which I, I feel very honored by. And the women love it too because it's, a girl that's playing with the boys but isn't a boy because I have no... I'm not going to be mistaken by it as a man by any time. No, <laughs> not any time soon. <laughs> I just... Wrong body type, wrong figure, wrong makeup skills. But uh, they like the fact that I've been able to hold my own, if not beat men, multiple times just because I've put the time and training in. And that's an equal respect thing. So, But then the kids are fun. I, I have a bunch of little kids that follow me around the world with their mommies and daddies on Facebook and they write to me and it's adorable. But that means a lot too because I have so many little girls sending photos last year of being Joan of Arc for Halloween and it made my season. Well, there's a couple things there. Joan, speaking of Joan of Arc, you, you, you got to play her in a TV show. Yes, it was excellent. I was the first woman ever to be on Deadliest Warrior which is a Spike TV cable show uh, where it's like Mortal Kombat, except with different historical warriors. So it's a little bit cheesy. It's a little bit fun. It's a whole lot of stunts and it's a rocking good time. And I was Joan of Arc. I was originally brought in the year before by a different production company on the show to either be Joan of Arc or the historical expert on her uh, because there aren't a lot of professional female knights running around that know anything about history. And our... That sounds a little harsh. <laughs> Probably. Well, that is true. It's true, things. though. That's just a statement. It's, there aren't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've put a lot of time into historical research because I came out of a nonprofit educational community. Um, but I was brought in, and then the um, cable channel passed on having a female the second year or the, or the second season of the show. And then the production company changed, and I was brought in again and this time for the expert, and then I got recast actually to do Joan, which was fantastic because I knew how to move an armor. I already knew the stunt horses because I had worked with them on a different project, and I got to meet some fantastic people, and it was wonderful. It was a very popular episode. A lot of people liked it, and it was really flattering to be able to be their first girl. Well, I watched it yesterday, and to be honest, you scared the crap out of me. So, <laughs> yeah, I played Bloodthirsty really well. <laughs> now, there's a certain movie came out, and for those that uh, haven't seen Virginia's picture yet, we'll obviously have it on our Facebook page. But if anybody saw the endless trailers they, that Disney ran for the movie Brave, which has the red-headed uh, Celtic girl on a on a on a big black horse uh, with her bow crazy. and arrow. <laughs> Um, her, her name is, is it Mer- Merida? Was it Merida? Merida. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
Virginia looks exactly like Merida, or Merida looks exactly like Virginia. I, th- I don't know which it is. I think Merida looks exactly like me, because I was doing it before <laughs> she did. That's true. You were around first. I think Disney, you should be charging Disney a royalty to use your, your image. Um, <laughs> you must have just been in heaven when you saw that first trailer and went, I'm that girl. It was very ironic. I was browsing online one day, and it came up when they were doing the first sneak peeks, and I cocked my head and said, I'm an action figure. <laughs> <laughs> you are. You can buy dolls of yourself. You, there's all kinds of stuff you can buy of yourself. I know. It's ridiculous. It was awesome. I actually got a horse and rider gift set, and I got a couple action figures and a bunch of posters because a lot of my friends kept buying me stuff, which is awesome. And then it happened to look like my horse if I put a blaze on my horse's face, too. I was like, huh, it has my dress, and it looks like me, and it looks like my horse. This is brilliant. <laughs> And it's been fun because that, too, you know, kids that haven't seen me in the Renaissance fairs are seeing me walking down the street, and they drag their parents over, and we get into our meet and greet oh, It's thing. the brave girl. It's the brave girl. <laughs> exactly. And because they know you're real, because they can see it. And it's been fun. I've noticed a huge surge of interest in archery between Brave and Hunger Games. Oh, yeah. This year. So I've been coaching because I volunteer as a coach at a um, a local archery range, and I've just been coaching tons of new kids, and that movie got so many of them interested in weapons and just non-mainstream sports. And the Hunger Games was so huge, and especially with the preteen and, you know, young teen and adults, too. I mean, I loved it. I read all the books. I've seen the movie. I can't wait till the next movie to come out. Mm -hmm. Um, It it just, I can see why that, that helped the archery sports. Yeah, it's incredible. And the nice thing, in my opinion, is that it's not just kids coming and being dropped off. It's actually the parents are staying with them. And I see more parents or single parents and their kids spend an entire day outside doing stuff together mm-hmm. because of that movie. It's just fantastic. They've really started developing a mutual love, which they're probably going to remember in a couple of years. I just want to know how you fit all that hair under a helmet. Braids. <laughs> <laughs> It's a lot of hair to stuff under that helmet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I wear a braid a lot of times when I'm doing the helmeted stuff. Um, for most shows, I ride around with that one because it looks better in photos. <laughs> yeah, it's just flowy <laughs> and red, bright red, flowy <laughs> hair. Well, now, you're also a model, and there's one particular right. shot in your website that I, I have to ask you about. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the shot of you in your armor, okay, in yeah. your beautiful armor, underwater. Were yes. you actually underwater? Absolutely. Oh, wow. That is an incredible shot. I mean, it's just an eerie incredible shot. It's beautiful. It's uh, called Joan of Arc or Lady of the Lake, Japan, who you ask. That's and the first that thing was, I thought it was, of was Lady of the Lake, actually. Yes, actually. And when I saw it, it was like, oh, my God, that's the legend of Excalibur that's never been told. Uh, it, because it's an armored woman, which in my mind makes a lot of sense. The Lady of the Lake, if she's the guardian right. of the Excalibur, she's Probably not a wuss. And she's going to have a red yeah. hair. I mean, just because. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was by Brenna Stump, and it was taken last fall. And actually, the mermaid shoot I just got back with, um, on, actually on Tuesday of this week, was with her as well. It's S-T-U-M-P-F is the last name, and she's phenomenal. It was right before I sent in my armor for another revision. And she contacted me saying, hey, would you want to work together? And I said, yeah. And we started brainstorming. And it ended up, because 
unfortunately, I invested in stainless steel armor. I was going to ask you about the rusting issue. (laughs) Yeah, it it was well-timed. It's stainless steel, and it's beautifully made, so it really didn't rust. A couple of the rivet points got a little rusty, but it was right before I sent it up to my armor for uh, rework, where I was getting some enhancements onto it. So it went for a swim. I hosed it off really well. And shipped it out to him, and when he was doing the revision, he was going to polish it anyway. So, See, I had this, I had this, thing, I had this thing in my mind. I was going, okay, if she's in water that's, you know, obviously in water that's over your head, yes. I was going, do they have a rope tied to her to yank her back up? Because once you get all the water in that armor, she's going to sink like a rock. Oh, absolutely. It's actually... I. <laughs> Funny thing, I decided to take my armor for a swim while I was doing that shoot because I wanted to see what would happen. And armor doesn't swim. No, not real well. <laughs> you kind of actually end up frog hopping along the bottom of the pool because <laughs> the uh, different plates all uh, channel the water around your body so you can't get a good grip in order to swim. So I, I am actually a scuba certified diver, so this is one of those things that I do not try this at home. And I did have a rescue diver crew with me. Literally, I had one guy on either side of me outside of the shot um, that were there for safety, as well as the mermaid shoot that I just did. But it was a brilliant experience, and it's a phenomenal photo. Yeah, because I, we all I think that photographers it. just take a picture and it's done. No, they have to take about 10,000 pictures. So you're, right. you're under there for a while. <laughs> right, and with water work, it's extremely hard because you're going against the temperature of the water or your own buoyancy or your ability to stay calm underwater. Um, a lot of it is honestly just ability to keep charge of your own emotions because when we're down there, you cannot panic. And it's fascinating because everything is also constantly moving. Like that perfect shot, all of a sudden your hair will fly in front of your face and then you need to do it again. But uh, the team that does the water work with me is phenomenal. So we always get great stuff no matter what. But there's a, the nice thing about digital is you take a lot of photos. Well, I see a bright future ahead for you. I am so excited that you were able to join us today. We wish you and Casanova the best of luck together. That uh, We Thank hope you. to see you in some uh, major roles here coming up. Well, does that make you want to sign up to, be, uh, to wear armor and uh, shoot bows? I definitely want to shoot bows. I don't know about the armor. I have a hard enough staying in the saddle without armor. Did you- but I, I do want to shoot bows and... Did you guys see Brave? Did you and Gracie go see the movie Brave? No, but I'm. it's on my list of things to do. It's definitely on my list of things to do to go see that. Well, as she said, you know, I had never thought about it, but between Hunger Games, where the, the main character there was an archer, uh, the, the teenage girl, and between that and Brave about archery becoming so huge that every, every teenage girl in America now wants to shoot a bow. Hey, I think it's a great distraction. I think it's a great hobby. Yeah. So, and I, we used to shoot a lot of bow and arrow when we had our farm. Um, we used to have a blast with that. I, I haven't done it in years, but it is fun. It is a lot of fun. I, I haven't done it. I used to do it in camp when I was at summer camp. And um, I loved it. Loved, loved, loved it. Well, apparently. You, uh, yeah. I mean, can you go out and like buy a oh, yeah. uh, thing? What do they call those? A bow and arrow. Things. <laughs> yeah. Target? You can buy bows. You can buy targets. Any sporting goods store. <laughs> And uh, they have beginner ones that aren't real expensive, and and you and your and your aren't place. real dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not the saying beginner that. Beginner ones need to blunt uh, tips or something. <laughs> depends where you're pointing it there, Helena. Um, but you could, <laughs> I, like I mean, in your inside. house, you could set up a, a target right in the backyard. Yeah. And what yeah. we what we used was just hay bales. We just sat up three hay bales and we just stapled their, you know, tacked the target onto the hay bales, and that's what we used. Oh, that's a good idea. Yep. That's a great idea. Yeah, that's all we did. 
Um, now, you, if you miss the hay bales, you want to make sure whatever's behind it's not like your neighbor's poodle. Um, you know, that's oh, probably. I don't know. Our neighbor's poodle's <laughs> a pain in the you-know-what. <laughs> or your own dog. You want to make sure it's pretty safe for a little ways behind it is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, fine. But, no, it's fun. Fine. And that is an activity that, uh, that little kids can do. They actually have kid bows, too, that are smaller in size. Okay. So, yeah, there you go. That's, that's a hobby for you now. I, please. I'll embrace it with open arms or closed arms, depending on how you hold the bow. Yeah, maybe a little bit of armor too might help. Um, <laughs> we'll be right. Maybe everybody, maybe everybody in the neighborhood should be wearing the armor. If you're going to give me a bow, an arrow, or bow and set of arrows, however you say that, maybe everyone else should wear their armor. That's I could be kind of dangerous. I think. Probably, I kept whacking myself in the arm. You know, when the when you release the string. And that's why they make those arm guards. But and boy, you do need to wear them because I never had good luck not hitting my own arm with it. So, oh, um, yeah, I guess it could be a little hazardous. Yeah. You know. And then of course they have the super bows now. You know, when I when we were shooting, it was just the recurve bows. It was the normal ones like Robin Hood used. But uh, now they but now have, they have like high tech fancy ones. Yeah, they have the high tech compound bows and everything else. Well, you know, like all the terminology. Uh-huh. You're you're. This isn't your first rodeo, to, is I it? I go to sporting goods stores a lot. That's the only reason. <laughs> That's the only reason is we like Cabela's. Well, you talk a good talk. I, you had me fooled there for a minute. We like Cabela's. What can I say? All right, we're going to be right back with our Tack and Habit segment right after this word from Kentucky Performance Products. Regular listeners to the show know that we love Kentucky Performance Products. And that's an easy thing to do because Kentucky Performance Products stand behind their products and they believe in them. Your complete satisfaction is guaranteed. If you are unsatisfied with any of their products, they will gladly refund your money. Does your horse or pony get fat on air alone? Is he living in a dry lot or turned out with a muzzle? Can't feed him more than a handful of grain and some hay? Then you need microphase. Microphase is a great way to ensure your horse or pony gets all of the nutrients he needs to stay healthy without adding calories to his diet. Microphase contains the vitamins and trace minerals not found in grass or hay, and your horse will eat it right out of your hand. You can learn more about Microphase and all of the products from Kentucky Performance Products by visiting kppusa.com. That's kppusa.com. Check out Microphase. This week's Tack and Habit is brought to you by Lisa, our account rep, and her visit to the American Equestrian Trade Association a few weeks ago. And this is one of the interviews that she managed to snag then. And we're here. uh, This is Lisa Kemp for Horse Radio Network. We're here live at Ada International Trade Show, the American Equestrian Trade Association. I'm here with Julian Lecomte of Sam Shield, and he's launching a new line of gloves here at the show. So we wanted to talk with you about these great new gloves. So tell us a little bit about them. Hi, Lisa. How are you? Good, thanks. So um, Sam Shield decided to, um, you know, grow and uh, put on the market a new line, and so he decided to. we decided to introduce you know, a new line of gloves. Right. Um, the idea was to work in the same philosophy that as we did with the helmets, some shield helmets, meaning that we work in the dark for you know over 18 months to make sure we propose to the customers the best glove as possible on the market. So we developed the glove with Kevin Stout as uh, number one, you know, uh, ranking number one right. uh, in the world in jumping. 
Um, just to let you know, uh, Kevin is basically killing a pair of gloves every three weeks. Wow. So it's, you know, he's using a lot of pair of gloves. <laughs> so the idea was to, you know, make sure that we offer something that it's very comfortable, obviously, very technical. So what we did that we use, you know, an ultra thin perforated lambskin leather that offer maximum comfort, airflow and lightness in, okay. the, in the gloves. We're using a strong thread fingerprinted with a real silicone that offer exceptional grip. Uh, great hand-to-horse connection and extreme durability. Meaning that today Kevin is, you know, using our gloves and we double, you know, the durability of the gloves. Wow. He's using them over six weeks. Wow, so, so he went from uh, new gloves every three weeks to new gloves every six exactly. weeks with your pair. Meaning that for, I'm saying that, you know, for an, a normal rider, because Kevin is a machine, right. really, right. Uh, it's, it's, you're going to keep your... Would he, would he <laughs> appreciate being called a machine? <laughs> In a way, yes, because it's a nice way to put him, you know what okay. I mean? It's just right. a guy is such, right. you know, a uh, hard worker. Right. And right. Um, when I say that, it's because it's very difficult to follow. <laughs> you know, he's very early in the morning. He's riding, you know, 10 to 15 horses a day. Wow. More like 10, wow. but um, when the competition arrives, you know, it, it may happen that he rides more than that. And uh, he's, you know, he's at the farm working. Plus, you know, he does other, uh, other work, like, you know, promotion, you know, the Sam Shield helmets, uh, travel all the time, you know, because it was a global champion tour, they just came back from the Olympic game, and this guy is super busy. Right, right, so, right. Um, and so it definitely, you know, put his in input, you know, in the hand, in the, sorry, I'm still with the helmet, with the gloves, and uh, we are very, very uh, happy with the result, and so far, all the customers that we've seen at the trade show yeah. are uh, very happy because it by some orders. So right, that's right. Mean, so the buyers are, are getting it into the retail shops. Exactly. So when, when is this going to be available to the consumers? It's going to be available uh, September 15th. Oh, great. So yeah. really quickly. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah, I've got a, a pair of these gloves on, and so it's really nice on the uh, the back of the hand. There's um, the perforations, which yes. you're talking about the ventilation, and then on the the, um, the palm and the fingers. So this is... Now, this is the sweat part okay. on the palm, yeah. and you can see the little different gray part right. is the right. silicone that we inject on it. Right, Meaning okay. that it can For be dry weather grip. or wet weather, right. it's going to be super grippy. Super grippy, right, right. No, right. these are really comfortable. Very, very comfortable. So and we, we offer um, uh, sorry to, yeah. to, we yeah. offer you know a different color we have right. the uh, black um, very traditional yeah. uh, we have the navy we right. have brown we have white and we do have the beautiful crystal fabric by Swarovski. You want to go check it out? Then go to your website right, which is www.samshield.com. That's correct. Yes. Okay, great. Thank you, Lisa, for providing us with those interviews from the Ada Show. We really appreciate it. So you took a little ride the other day I saw on Facebook and braved the elements and the great animals. I did. I did. You know, I've been a little um, behind on my on chapter. I think we're on chapter five or four with Brody and the Bee over on Stable Scoop on Facebook. I've been giving updates about our ventures, and um, we have... We've made two huge leaps, you know, from literally going outside the barn and around the corner. We've ridden to the post office downtown. Wow. <laughs> We've ridden down to the Do local Christmas tree farm. The post and then on Sunday, Brody and I, with a friend and her horse, rode all the way down to Goosewing Beach. 
Yep. We rode all the way down there, right out my back door. And he was a superstar. How about a yourself? A superstar. Were you with someone? Yeah, I was with uh, one of the local gals here, and she's got a big, big old Belgian who she just oh, hacks wow. around. His name is James. Oh, and he's so handsome <laughs> and really, really sweet. And, you know, they pull up in their trailer, and Brody and I come out the gate, and Brody's like, oh, his, he's all high headed, and his neck is all like rock hard. Like, what's happening? Where are we going? Who is that horse? Oh my God, he's big. Is that a trailer? Am I getting on it? Is he getting off it? What's going on? You know? So he was a little up. And excited. And, um, but you know what? It was, I'm like, oh God, what's he going to do? How excited is he going to get? But he really just, he let it all go once we started moving out. Um, he really wanted to, to say hi to James. He wanted to get all up in his kitchen, put his nose in his butt, put his nose in his face. How are you? Sniff, sniff. What do you, you know, where you come from? So that was a little difficult. I kind of had to keep him out of James's space for a while. But we we braved traffic, we braved kids on bicycles, dog walkers, you name it, and um, and then the ocean, the big ocean. Oh, and remember what we talked about last week was, uh, you know, there was a big shark that washed up on your beach. There was a big shark. I didn't actually walk him down onto the sand and into the surf. So instead, like our parking lot is all it's all just dirt. It's hard pack, and it goes right down to the to the surf sand and then so anyway we just sort of pulled in where all the cars pull in <laughs> we just sort of parked parked the horses and he he got a look the waves were not huge it was sort of a quiet wave kind of day but there was you know they were white and um he didn't seem to have a problem with them at all he was just kind of looking around at all the people and um you know with all the activity the only thing that really bothered him were it, because it was kind of a hot day on Sunday that the gnats were out and the flies, and he just wanted no part of those bugs. Huh. So we, um, but that was it. You know, once we turned around and got through the gnats, he was, he was happy to go pretty much anywhere I pointed him. Can you imagine that? Like, how lucky did I get? I, I just hacked out my back door down to the beach, down to the Atlantic Ocean. Who does that? Now, are you allowed to ride on the beach there? Well, we weren't sure. And the girl I went with had said that previously when um, two riders that she knew were down there and they had gone down the weekend that the shark washed up on shore, the great white, the big 13 foot great white shark that washed up on shore. Um, and they kicked her off. They, they got kicked off. So she wasn't sure if you know we were loud or not. Now, I read the town bylaws because, you know, I'm a freak like that. I have to know everything. And there was nothing that said you couldn't ride on the beach, but there was something that said you can't park trailers down on the beach parking lot. However, I got a text this morning from my friend, and she said she talked to the beach commission, and we have permission to ride. Huh. Well, there you go. Mm-hmm. Take him in the surf. Mm-hmm. You guys got a little spoiled, you and Jennifer, when you lived up in the North Shore of Boston there because they did have a humongous beach that you guys were allowed to ride on at certain times. And Ugh, I know you and there was that. no rocks, no shells. It was the perfect footing for horses. And you could go and go and go and go. This go beach is not as long as Crane's Beach, and there are some rocks, but the rocks are smooth. And um, when the tide is way out, there aren't any rocks, so the footing is really good. But you have to, like with Crane's, you, you could catch it you know, an hour or two before low tide or an hour or two after, and you were still fine. But here, it really, have to, if you ride it, it's got to be at low, low tide. That's okay. <laughs> I'll make it work. 
Okay, so your homework assignment before next week's show is to ride Brody down there and dip his water in or dip his feet in the water. <laughs> dip his feet in the water. I would like to do that. Um, well, I, I happen to think that ocean water is like heals everything. It does everything. So hopefully that'll help help his hooves get healthier. Yeah, when the shark's not eating you, it's fine. It's very <laughs> healing. Not. Something else <laughs> ate the shark. The shark was dead, remember? Um, this weekend, actually, this Sunday, we are going to compete, or we're going to ride in the Westport Hunter Pace. Oh, cool. Which is put on by the Norfolk Hunt. And... Um, yeah, so I he's totally gonna he's totally not fit for it. <laughs> so we're gonna be doing a lot of walking, but uh, we'll give that a go and see how how it works out. Yeah, hundred paces are fun. That'll be a blast. Yeah. yeah. Well, good. Well, let us know next week on the show how you did. Okay. Yeah, right. Hopefully, we'll have some pictures to post. It depends on who you know. Pretty much anybody that I'm friends with is going to be riding in it. So we gotta we gotta rope somebody into coming along and just taking photos. Terrific. Well, I'm glad Brody's working out. That's good. Um, and uh, your knee's holding up. Everything's healthy there. It's feeling okay, right? The knee is, is actually doing really well. Um, I will probably have to have the screw removed that's holding in what, the because new... Because you have a screw loose? Yeah. <laughs> we all know that. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I had to take it. You you threw it out there. I did. I walked right into it. <laughs> I walked right into it. <laughs> So we'll wait until the winter time to schedule that surgery. The it's irritating the um the nerves and stuff or the surgical screw that's in there. So um and it hurts when I have to use my left leg for as a lateral aid, like a strong lateral aid. So leg yields to the right are difficult and even bending him to the left around my inside leg, I can feel it's painful. That's all right. He'd rather not be bent anyway. He'd rather so. not be bent. But <laughs> so. for hunting, no problem at all. Go right. straight and fast, not an issue. <laughs> so otherwise, it's different. holding up just fine. Well, very good. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us again this week. We appreciate you being here. Don't forget, you can listen to all the shows on the Horse Radio Network at horseradionetwork.com. We thank all of our sponsors for being involved today, Equestrian Collections, Draper Therapies, Fleece Works, and Kentucky Performance Products. And we thank Helena for showing up. (laughs) Sometimes that's hard to do. (laughs) Thank you, Helena. You are welcome. Thanks, everybody. I hope you'll join us again next week. Happy scooping. <laughs> <laughs>